From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Street. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing, highlights from Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. Pandemic. The second half of the program will feature encore presentations of topics previously heard on Mayo Clinic Radio. Let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka, and we thank you for joining us today. The concept of herd immunity has sparked debate about whether it might be helpful in controlling COVID-19. Herd immunity is a phenomenon that occurs when a sufficient number of a population has immunity to an infectious disease, such as a bacteria, or in this case, a virus, and it helps to control the spread from person to person, making it much less likely. Well, here with us today to answer our questions, about this concept is Dr. Vincent Rajkumar. He's a hematologist and researcher uh, and an expert on this topic at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Vincent. Thank you so much, Helena, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it is wonderful. I love to learn something new every day, so I'm looking forward to this. I'm wondering if for our um, you know, general population, community population, you would explain to us in simple terms, what antibodies are and uh, how they might make a difference in COVID-19. Any, any of us, when we get an infection, one of the main mechanisms by which we fight infections is to make antibodies. Antibodies are made by cells in our blood called plasma cells. Um, these live in uh, lymphoid tissues, in the bone marrow, in the blood. They make antibodies and help us fight infection. Antibodies are simply proteins. They can be measured in the blood. And so when COVID-19 or the SARS coronavirus 2 infects us, we make antibodies against this virus, which helps us clear the virus. Vincent, could you tell us how, what T cells are and how they um, play a part in COVID-19? Fascinating thing about the human body is that we don't have just antibodies to fight an infection. We also have a, another immune process called T cell mediated immunity that also helps us fight infection. In antibody-mediated immunity, we have cells that make proteins that target the virus. In cell-mediated immunity, the actual cell itself fights the virus. So we have cells called T lymphocytes or T cells, and these can target the virus or bacteria or any other offending pathogen and affect it and kill it. Now, Cell-mediated immunity and antibody-mediated immunity work hand-in-hand. Hand. They help each other out. And we need robust cell-mediated immunity as well as antibody-mediated immunity in order to fight an infection effectively. Would it be safe to say then that herd immunity can happen in two different ways? One, by enough people catching the virus and becoming immune to it. 
and the other by us receiving a vaccine that would make us um, immune or unable to catch the virus. That is correct. I mean, you can achieve herd immunity, which is when a sufficient population, sufficient proportion of the population is immune so that the virus has no place to go and the whole population becomes immune. Usually you need about 70% of the population to be immune to achieve what we call herd immunity so that the virus transmission drops dramatically. Now, this can be achieved partly by a proportion of the population getting the actual infection and partly by a proportion of the population that is vaccinated and has therefore achieved immunity as a result of the vaccine. Is it possible to be immune without ever um, catching COVID-19 or knowing that you had it? I think one of the main reasons why COVID-19 is a pandemic right now is because a lot of people who are spreading COVID-19 don't even have symptoms. So with the original SARS, people got very, very sick. So you could avoid them and they could avoid you. So transmission was cut short. With COVID-19, the reason it's a pandemic now and the whole world is suffering is because 80%, up to 80% of the people who get COVID-19 may not have any symptoms. So they are out there spreading, but they don't themselves have symptoms. Well, if you don't have symptoms, when you are immune eventually, you won't know about it. So yes, they are asymptomatic and eventually they become immune, but we know we don't know about them. One thing I've been incredibly um, impressed with during this pandemic is the incredible speed with which we are sharing information, the number of articles that I've seen come out in journals and the information (laughs) in the newspaper and the sharing that's going on uh, between um, institutions and even countries is remarkable. Have we learned anything from countries that were hit heavy earlier on with COVID-19 about herd immunity and how it's affected their populations, or is it too early for that? We have learned a lot, and in fact, in fact, I'm very fascinated about this. The, the, the virus doesn't know geography. The virus doesn't know borders between states or countries, and it just goes to a place and attacks it. What have we learned? Um, one thing we have learned is if you look at um, a place like Wuhan, where the virus actually started. Uh, you have almost 100,000 people got infections in Wuhan. But Wuhan has a population of 11 million. So what happened to the remaining 10.9 million people? When they've done seroprevalence studies in Wuhan, they found only about 3 to 4% of the population has had exposure to the virus. Does it mean the remaining 97% are really susceptible or is a larger proportion of the population immune through some other mechanisms? We don't know. But then when we come to places uh, like Madrid, like Milan, uh, like Lombardy, like New York, or, or uh, even uh, Sweden, you get, when they've done seroprevalence studies, you get about 10 to 20% of the population who have antibodies against the virus. But then when you look at these hotspots, they've all kind of tanked and they've come down dramatically. Even though we think you need 70% of the population to be immune to be to have herd immunity, these kind of rapid decreases in these hotspots have happened even when only 10 to 20% of the population has antibodies. So what does this mean? One, it might mean that 
many of these places immediately started wearing masks, immediately started social distancing. They had some precautions instituted. And that's why things have come down. And if that's the case, you have to keep continuing to do that. And I really recommend we continue to do that. It's also possible that the seroprevalence is underestimating how many people are truly immune. Maybe more people are immune, but our antibody studies are not quite sensitive in capturing that. So I guess a logical question, next question would be, how long does immunity um, to COVID-19 last? And does it differ if you've been exposed and have antibodies versus if we may get an immunization? One of the reasons why people are concerned now is that some studies are coming out showing that antibody levels decrease with time rapidly after COVID-19. And the question is, if antibodies after a real infection go down, are these patients going to get COVID again? And if this is the case for real infections, what will happen with the vaccine? Would, you, would the antibodies just rapidly disappear so that the vaccines won't be effective at all? Now, that's, I think, more of a theoretical concern. Um, generally, I view antibodies as simply biomarkers of whether somebody has had exposure or not. The cells that make these antibodies are there in the body. They are memory cells. They are long-lived plasma cells. And they will show up and fight an infection if and when the same pathogen comes back again or in a vaccinated patient if they are exposed to COVID-19. So I'm not as concerned about the durability of the immunity or whether people can get it again. I think um, it's very likely that the infection is protective from a subsequent infection. It's very likely then the vaccine will also be protective. And these kind of decreases that we are seeing are mainly because a lot of patients with COVID are asymptomatic. So they've actually seen that most of these decreases happen in people who've got asymptomatic infections. In 40% of those patients, the antibodies even completely disappear. Um, but it doesn't mean that they are now suddenly susceptible again. Um, the odds are very high that they still have the cells that made them long-lived in the body, and that if they ever meet COVID again, they would be able to handle it. So I'm very optimistic. I'm much more optimistic than what the reports have been coming out. Um, then we also cannot forget, like we talked about T-cell immunity. We have many studies now showing that people have robust T-cell responses against this virus, even if they don't have antibodies. And these T-cells are going to immediately recognize the virus and also afford protection. And we have, we have data like, uh, interesting data, for example, from Sweden, where if you look at close family contacts, some people you can detect antibodies, but in twice as many people, you could detect T cells that are targeting the COVID virus. So there are other mechanisms and they didn't get symptoms. So the, this is very fascinating. In the Antarctica cruise ship, you had 10 rooms uh, with two people in a room. So that's 20 people. One had COVID, one didn't. I mean, if you spend 20 days in the same room and you don't get COVID, there must be some other mechanism by which you're getting immunity. So there's many, many examples like this that I can give you to suggest that antibodies are one thing, T cells are a second weapon against this virus. And no matter what happens to these levels, whether it's through natural infection or, or a vaccine, there will be protection for us. Protection not maybe from a 
trivial infection, but certainly from a serious infection. That's all we want. We don't want people to get very sick. And, and to that extent, these things will help. Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. Well, here with us today to answer our questions is Dr. Vincent Rajkumar. Thanks for joining us today, Vincent. Early on during the course of um, this COVID uh, pandemic, I remember ha- hearing people kind of argue that why don't we just let everybody get the virus and get it over with? Second to that was, well, we don't have enough ventilators in the United States, perhaps, to support that, that idea. So we need to kind of slow things down by social distancing and masking. But now um, it would seem that that is more, the reason we are doing those things is almost more to slow the spread before we have a vaccine. Would that be a true estimation? You achieve a lot by slowing the spread. We have learned in the last few months how to deal with very sick patients. Just at Mayo Clinic, you know, proning, oxygen, the use of dexamethasone, the use of remdesivir, you reduce the mortality significantly. By slowing the spread with masks, with social distancing, I also believe you reduce the viral dose. If you look at healthcare workers in highly affected hotspots, they had high risk of dying, probably because they were exposed to very high viral loads. Now with masks, social distancing, and this whole strategy of let's stretch it out, a second benefit is if you do get exposed, you probably are going to get a lower viral dose, and hopefully that means a milder infection. And what's not to think about that a vaccine is in sight? So if we can spread it out another six months, hopefully we can get vaccine for the vulnerable people, vaccines for the people who are working in healthcare facilities and uh, really save a huge number of lives. So I think we need to continue to go on the same track. We don't need complete lockdowns, but very cleverly try to keep the country going and at the same time flatten the, uh, the curve, so to speak, so that we can save more lives and prevent too many people from getting sick at the same time, overwhelming the healthcare system. That's a really great reminder of our personal responsibility in all of this. It's, uh, it's not just one person, it's all of us. Exactly, um, exactly. So interesting. Okay, so my last question for you, Vincent, yes. is one of particular interest to me, because I have read that um, people with type A blood <laughs> be more susceptible to developing COVID-19, and I happen to have type A blood. And um, I'm curious if blood type or male versus female sex have um, something to do with uh, the development of COVID-19 and how much it will affect you. Oh, this is a very interesting question because you have one advantage in the sense that um, by being of the female gender, I have one advantage, I am O positive. <laughs> so, you know, there's some, some trade-off there. Because what studies show now is that, the, and there are many studies, one was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, I think one was published um, uh, as a preprint. Both studies show the same thing, um, that people with O blood group have about a probably a third less chance of getting COVID-19 than rest of the blood groups. And people with A have about a 25% extra chance of getting COVID-19 
compared to other blood groups. Uh, why this is, is still not clear. There might be some uh, cross-reactivity, maybe the, the antibodies that a patient with O, that a person with O blood group might have against the A antigen may somewhat interfere with the COVID-19 virus. Um, but there are studies now suggesting that, and so we have to keep that in mind. But, you know, the risk reduction by 20% or 30% extra is very minor. Uh, so I don't think people with A group need to be that worried or anything. I think it's more of a trivia than, than a real effect on humans with thing. The other thing that's more fascinating is the gender difference. So many studies show males have a more serious illness than females. And there is a fascinating study in uh, JAMA, I think, uh, that shows, that looked at uh, two sets of twins, identical twins, uh, four brothers uh, from, ne from the Netherlands, uh, treated at different hospitals. One set of twins got very, very sick, and all of them are young, less than 35 years old. You wouldn't think that they will get sick, but one set of twins got very sick. One brother died, one survived. And then a month later, another set of twins, similarly, both young, both got very critically ill. And so a lot of studies were done to see why would this be happening in young men like this. And they did a whole genome sequencing and they found that both of them had mutations in TLR7, which is the toll-like receptor seven, which the protein helps you mount an immune response. And they had mutations in this and that is located on the X chromosome. So the th thinking is that one of the reasons that men may have a more severe disease is that they may have mutations in this TLR7, which is sitting on chromosome X. So they don't have another copy of X chromosome to counter that. Whereas women with two X chromosomes may be able to overcome that, even if they have mutations in one. So I don't know. It's fascinating. It is really fascinating. Like I said, there's just so much, there's new information every day. It's really interesting and a little bit difficult to keep up with, in fact. Exactly, exactly. Thank you so much to Dr. Vincent Raj Kumar, a hematologist and researcher here at the Mayo Clinic, for joining us today to tell us about herd immunity and for learning something new with me today. Have a wonderful day. Due to the COVID-19 response, the second half of our show will be encore presentations of previously aired programs. Stay with us. Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Vaccines have received a lot of news attention lately, and while vaccinations are most often thought of as a childhood rite of passage, adults need immunizations to stay healthy, too. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently simplified the adult immunization schedule, but questions about vaccines remain, especially from new moms and mothers-to-be. Mayo Clinic family medicine physician Dr. Tina Arden shares info that can help answer some questions. Before pregnancy, women should know about their varicella or chickenpox status, as well as rubella. 
Rubella infection during pregnancy can lead to serious complications or outcomes such as miscarriages, birth defects, or fetal demise. Both the varicella vaccine and the vaccine typically given for rubella are live vaccines, so these should be received before pregnancy. Women should avoid getting pregnant for at least one month after receiving these vaccines. During pregnancy, women should receive a tetanus vaccine, reduced diphtheria toxoid, and a tetanus diphtheria and pertussis, or T. DAP booster, which is given during the third trimester. No matter when a woman last received a Tdap booster, she should receive it again with each subsequent pregnancy. Additionally, any woman who is pregnant during flu season should receive a flu vaccine. Now, you might wonder if vaccines are safe for an unborn baby. Dr. Arden says there is really only theoretical risk when getting vaccines during pregnancy. The CDC says, quote, the benefits of vaccinating pregnant women usually outweigh potential risks when the likelihood of disease exposure is high, when infection would pose a risk to the mother or fetus, and when the vaccine is unlikely to cause harm. And in other news, let's talk about summer. The return of summer cookout brings with it the risk for sickness from a bacteria that can end up spoiling more than one meal. Cook hamburgers incorrectly and you could end up with a case of E. coli. Dr. Nipunira Dipoxi, a Mayo Clinic infectious disease specialist, says E. coli is a type of bacteria, and most commonly we hear about it in raw or undercooked hamburger meat. She says E. coli bacteria can create some stomach-turning symptoms such as abdominal pain and nausea, but it can get even worse. There's a specific type of E. coli which can cause bloody diarrhea and has been associated with a condition that can cause kidney damage, especially in young children. The elderly are also at higher risk for problems with E. coli, as are pregnant women, people with underlying digestive problems, and those with weakened immune systems. Dr. Rajapoxi says if someone were to be exposed to E. coli in something they ate or drank, they may have symptom onset within a couple of days to a few weeks after infection or exposure. She says the best way to avoid a bout with the bacteria is to wash your hands and thoroughly cook your hamburgers. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, the bile ducts are a series of thin tubes that connect your liver to your gallbladder and your small intestine. Their major job is to move a fluid called bile from the liver and gallbladder into the small intestine where it helps digest fats in the food. Cancer of the bile duct, called cholangiocarcinoma, is an uncommon form of cancer that occurs mostly in people older than age of 50, but it can occur at any age. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Brett Peterson. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Peterson. It's good to see you again. Thank you. It's good to be back. So I guess cancer can occur virtually anywhere, even in the bile ducts. Sure, even in these uh, small tubes that are really quite tiny, um, but typically early on we don't know anything about it until it reaches obstruction of the duct. That's usually the first symptom that will bring someone in? Um, Well, cholangiocarcinoma in past years also included the gallbladder, and nowadays we think of gallbladder cancer as somewhat of a separate entity. But gallbladder cancer can present with um, uh, more of a mass invading the liver, causing pain and discomfort, whereas cholangiocarcinoma of the ducts themselves usually presents with obstruction leading to jaundice and liver test abnormalities. Tell us what you mean by jaundice. It involves both the skin and the eyes is where you usually see it? 
So if the bile flow is obstructed or if the liver cells themselves aren't working well, as in hepatitis, the bile backs up into the bloodstream. And some components of bile, uh, the bilirubin, which is a breakdown product from blood cells, um, deposits into the skin and the eyes, causing the yellow or orangey uh, golden appearance of both of those areas. Can this also change the color of your stools? Yes. When you lose the flow of bile into the intestinal tract, the stools become very light and lose their typical dark brownish color. So they look uh, gray or very pale. But compared to other cancers, cholangiocarcinoma is pretty rare. It's It's a rare cancer. How does it end up being diagnosed? Once someone uh, presents with liver test abnormalities, commonly with jaundice, sometimes with infection above the blockage, uh, then imaging tests are done with usually CT scans or MRIs. And during an MRI, the algorithm can be applied mathematically to give a picture of the bile ducts themselves as opposed to a picture of the entire organ. And that will show a shape of where the ducts are open, where they're pinched, where they're dilated above a pinch. Once that's leading us to a strong suspicion of blockage, we do an endoscopic procedure called an endoscopic retrograde cholangiogram, where cholangiogram refers to a bile duct Mm x-ray. We go down through the mouth to the attachment of the bile duct in the intestine and put a small catheter into the duct and advance dye up to the liver and take some x-rays, which shows us where it is. Through that same path, we can acquire samples with brushings or biopsies. We can put small instruments up inside to look at the tight spots. Even then, it's sometimes difficult to prove under the microscope. So occasionally, this requires repeated testing or repeated maneuvers. Are most of these cancers, cholangiocarcinomas, high-grade, fast-growing? Most of them are high-grade and difficult to treat. Uh, The speed of growth is sometimes hard to estimate because we often don't know about them until they're somewhat advanced, and many of them present either in a size or a location that makes them very difficult to treat. How many of them have already spread elsewhere? I assume you have to stage the patient, meaning determine whether or not it's localized to the to the liver or the bile ducts, or if it has spread elsewhere? Yeah, so the cholangiocarcinoma itself at its original site uh, varies uh, in some important ways. It can be within the liver, which is more difficult to treat and uh, more difficult to remove surgically. It can be right at the junction of the ducts, such as where a trunk of a tree splits into multiple branches. The anatomy of involvement there is very critical as to what can be done for it, or it can be below in the major trunk where surgery is uh, much more feasible. Spread often occurs into other areas of the liver or into the lymph nodes right neighboring the duct at the base of the liver. But surgery is the first line of treatment? For those that uh, are localized, especially in the duct below the liver, surgery is a preferred treatment and the best approach for cure. Uh, For those right at the split uh, between the right and left liver, we can sometimes do surgery, which is much more major, by removing half of the liver with the involved ducts if the other side is free. And uh, more recently, our institution has been one of the leaders in developing a program that's now uh, becoming more widespread around the country using a combination of chemotherapy, radiation therapy as a prelude to liver transplantation. And that is available for patients with a very specific 
subset of the size and uh, localization of their tumor. It's not available if it's already spread to lymph nodes. But that's a, obviously an aggressive form of surgery, which is quite successful for that small subset who are candidates for it. What's the survival rate like? The survival rate, uh, especially for those who can't have full excision or transplant, is not good. It's uh, very, very low uh, amongst all cancers uh, when we look at five-year survivals. Like 20% like or even probably lower? probably less than 10%. Despite using all the modalities, whether you can use surgery or not, but you mentioned also radiation, chemotherapy. Is there any targeted therapy out there or immunotherapy that's in the works? There are a variety of protocols uh, using uh, immunotherapy and uh, other uh, antibody-based therapies, but they're um, highly focused research protocols in oncologic practices. Well, we're certainly hoping that with an additional amount of time, they will help you treat Mm -hmm. this dreaded disease called cholangiocarcinoma. Bile duct cancer, we've been talking with Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Brett Peterson. Dr. Peterson, thanks so much. Thank you for the opportunity. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the common circulatory problem, peripheral artery disease. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Peripheral artery disease is a common problem of circulation caused by narrowing of the arteries due to plaque formation, which reduces blood flow to your limbs. When you develop peripheral artery disease, or PAD, your extremities, usually your legs, don't receive enough blood flow to keep up with the demand. And this can cause symptoms, usually leg pain when walking, known as claudication. PAD is also likely to be a sign of a more widespread problem, the accumulation of fatty deposits in all of your arteries, known as atherosclerosis. Here to discuss peripheral artery disease is Mayo Clinic vascular surgeon, Dr. Randall DiMartino. Welcome back to the program, Dr. DiMartino. Thank you. Good morning. Dr. DiMartino, always good to see you. So this term, peripheral artery disease, break it down for us. Define those terms so our listeners know exactly what we're talking about. Sure. When we talk about peripheral artery disease, peripheral meaning uh, the circulation mostly to the extremities, often the lower extremities, as opposed to central uh, atherosclerotic disease, which we usually refer to as in the heart. Um, As far as the arteries, we differentiate them from the veins. The arteries are what bring blood flow to the organs or to the extremities. The veins are responsible for bringing it back. And the disease, typically uh, in older patients, uh, we see the hardening and plaques that build up over time uh, that can limit circulation to the extremities uh, and causing the symptoms as as you were just discussing. Typically, cramping that occurs with walking uh, as your muscles need more oxygen, the blood flow can't keep up with demand, you get a cramp, similar as if you would run too hard and you need to take a couple deep breaths. Uh, And as you relax, the blood flow and oxygen levels reaccumulate and the cramp goes away and then you can go again. Typically that can happen over and over again. It's called window gazer's disease because uh, people would walk down the street, they get a cramp, they just stop, look at a window, and a few minutes later it's gone, they can go on their way. So, window gazer's yeah. disease? I like that. <laughs> that cramping is the main way that you know that someone has PAD? That's the most typical symptom. You can have uh, some people who have very minor blockages may have no symptoms. Patients who have very, very advanced disease may have pain at rest. We call that rest pain. Uh, And uh, patients who have even more profound disease may have wounds that can't heal because of lack of oxygen. So what's the cause, the underlying cause? You you talked about atherosclerosis and clogging up of the arteries, but why some people and why not others? 
it can happen for a multitude of reasons. It can be uh, some of them, maybe not all of them, depending on genetics that can uh, contribute as well, like heart disease. Uh, but typically advanced age, uh, men versus women are more likely to get it. Smokers, uh, whether previously or current, uh, and uh, high elevated cholesterol levels, uh, especially over time. Uh, it can be uh, diabetes as well can be a major contributor at renal disease, such as patients on dialysis. So these are the patient populations we see the most. As I say, many patients have some of these factors, not all of them. Some people who have uh, genetics may not have any of them. Diabetes, you mentioned, and it, and it seems to me like we're seeing more and more patients who are diabetic who have this problem. Diabetes raises havoc with your blood vessels. It does. The long-term elevated uh, uh, blood glucose or blood sugar levels uh, cause damage to the artery walls. It's a little bit different than the typical smoker uh, uh, disease that uh, they get in the thighs. Diabetes can sometimes affect the smaller vessels in the calf, uh, but but results in very similar problems in terms of the circulation. So how do you diagnose it? Is it just you get the cramp? That's the most obvious way to diagnose it? Uh, an astute clinician may pick up on that uh, description and be able to uh, gather the most likely diagnosis. Physical exam is helpful when you see your doctor in terms of uh, palpating pulses, but uh, an ankle, ankle brachial index, which is where they measure the blood pressure of your arms and legs and compare the two, is uh, the most typical way to formally diagnose the disease. And we get a ratio where if it's less than 0.9, that's typically abnormal. Uh, and then there are ranges that we see for claudication, typically from 0.5 to, to 0.9. And then for patients who have more advanced disease, it may be lower than that. Explain that test for us, the ankyl brachial index. They, uh, a, a technician will uh, take a blood pressure of your, both of your arms, usually use the higher uh, value of the two. Then they'll put the blood pressure cuff or a special one on your ankles and do the exact same test. And then they basically just do a fraction of the ankle number over the brachial number. I know you're, I'm the layperson here, I know you're checking blood pressure, but it would make sense to me that your ankle is farther away from your heart, so maybe that that blood pressure would be a little bit lower. Should I go to medical school? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Actually, it's um, in the normal person, it's slightly higher. Really? That gets a little bit Gravity. more in depth, but uh, yeah, it uh, a typical uh, normal value is one to point well, to one point one. So when we do see people below point nine, that's uh, typically an abnormal value. So what that test shows you if there's a significant reduction in blood flow to the lower extremity. Exactly. All right. Uh, so you've made and, and by the way, there are other things that can mimic peripheral artery disease, like uh, spinal stenosis, for example, can cause similar symptoms, right? Very much so. That sometimes is referred to as neurogenic claudication, although that's somewhat of a misnomer. Uh, but it causes very similar lower extremity symptoms with walking, uh, typically when you're more upright as uh, the nerves are pinched. But as opposed to peripheral arterial disease where just stopping will make your legs better, uh, these patients typically have to sit down and roll their backs forward, and that relieves the compression on the nerves. That's one way to tell based on history. All right, let's talk about treatment because I know you've got uh, a lot of options and you're much better at treating these patients than you used to be. Exactly. The first and foremost thing is making sure you're on the right medications. Uh, Typically, non-surgical treatment and modification of risk factors is the number one thing to do. Uh, So making sure you're on the appropriate cardiovascular protective medicines, as we discussed, it's a a systemic disease often. So um, when you talk about risk factors, so if you smoke, you got to quit smoking. If you're diabetic, you get your blood sugar under control. The medication, what kind of medication are you talking about? 
most patients with symptomatic peripheral arterial disease are recommended to be on statin medications uh, for to control keep their cholesterol, cholesterol down. Okay, and uh, antiplatelet medicines uh, such as an aspirin or uh, clopidogrel or Plavix are, are to often keep you from forming clots in the artery. Okay. Mm-hmm. After that, uh, we recommend walking programs for patients. So these are sessions that are uh, three times a week uh, for 12 weeks, uh, similar to a cardiac rehabilitation type of program. And uh, they work at developing collaterals or accessory arteries or smaller arteries to work around blockages. So I talk to patients. It's like uh, you know, sort of beefing up your back roads in case the highway is closed so uh, you can get uh, better flow down to the legs. But do uh, they have to walk through the pain if they get cramping that happens? They just have to keep on walking? Exactly. That's what tells the body to create new channels or expand the channels that it has. They're easy to spot at the gym because they're crying while they're walking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. And uh, let's say that those they've they've done those all those things you've suggested and they still have the problem. So after a trial of uh, uh, exercise therapy for claudication, if there's symptoms are still lifestyle limiting, we can offer either endovascular techniques, which may involve placement of a stent or balloon uh, across a blockage to expand it and reopen it, uh, similar to how they do in the heart. Uh, for advanced blockages or long blockages, uh, bypass surgery may be recommended, and that's where we use a vein or another conduit uh, or, or material to bring blood flow around a blockage, uh, similar to a heart bypass. So tell us a little bit more about this balloon procedure. You actually uh, snake a catheter down into the area of the blockage, balloon it to open it up, and then you put a, a stent in there to hold it open? Correct. It's, this can often be done as a same-day procedure. You're typically sedated, so not fully under anesthesia, and we navigate a wire and catheter across those blockages, and then uh, the stent is uh, to help reinforce and prevent a re-narrowing from happening in the future. And how successful is it? It depends on the length of the blockage and and the degree of narrowing, uh, whereas a narrowing may be easy to cross. A total blockage uh, may be more difficult, so it depends on the characteristics. And uh, so imaging is usually used either before or during to help make that assessment of whether a stent is appropriate and would be likely to be successful. Even if you surgically treat them, though, I would imagine that you have to still make the lifestyle changes and different things of that nature. Otherwise, you'd be right back there getting another surgery. Or does it re- does it take care of it and you don't have to do it again? Uh, you're exactly right. Uh, it is imperative that uh, all of those, all of these more advanced treatments are all built off of lifestyle modification as the first thing. We know that any of these therapies will not work as well if uh, you continue to smoke or uh, don't control your blood sugars or cholesterol. And we should probably uh, let our audience know that sometimes if the endovascular procedure, the balloon procedure doesn't work, then it might require open surgery. And sometimes that's not successful and an amputation can be the result. Unfortunately, in very advanced uh, uh, cases, patients with advanced disease, uh, that can that can occur. We do everything we can to, to prevent that. Uh, and often patients may have to go through multiple procedures uh, in order to make sure that we can uh, salvage the leg in, in a very advanced state. All right. Peripheral artery disease, symptoms, risk factors, diagnosis, and ways, different ways to treat it. Dr. DiMartino, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me.
And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.